James chapter 5. For our opening text of Scripture in this series on prayer that I hope you will remember and keep as a reminder for the importance of prayer and for all the aspects of prayer that we're going to cover in the next two Sundays, God helping us. James chapter 5, I want to begin reading at verse 15. Let's get verse 14 for the whole thought there. James 5 and verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. Now listen. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. The one sentence I want you to remember more than the rest is the second half of verse 16. Let these words forever burn themselves into your memory, that you see them daily as we read in the Psalms, and as we saw in 2 Samuel 7. Let them be burned before you in blazing letters when you are on your knees before God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. One sentence contains just about everything you want to know about prayer in germ form, which we will develop in the next four sermons, God willing. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It just didn't say it avails. It avails much. You have at your disposal in prayer given that you meet the qualifications of being a righteous man or woman, given that you meet the qualification of having effectual prayer, which will be the reason for our study, and that you are fervent in that prayer, you have at your fingertips, at your knees, or as David prayed in 2 Samuel 7, how did he pray? What position was he in while sitting? You have at your disposal the greatest source of power to accomplish great things in your life and the lives of those around you through prayer. We live, however, in a generation that does not value prayer like they once did. I have this to say for those men we call the Puritans. They may not have understood the doctrine of baptism. They may not have understood the doctrine of regeneration. They may not have understood the doctrine of the local church. They may not have stood a number of things. But one thing they did understand, the value of prayer. And God rewarded their efforts even though they were in error. And if you don't think God rewarded their efforts, you are ignorant of history. The great awakening in this nation that provided a religious foundation for the growth of our country prior to the revolution and the forming of our Constitution was based on prayer and preaching following that prayer. Some of you may be familiar with the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have even heard about Jonathan Edwards and that sermon? I hope that most of you have. That sermon was preached in a little 
wooden church building, not a fancy building, by candlelight, with Jonathan Edwards reading it in a monotone from his notes. But during that sermon, men were so under conviction by the power of that preaching of the holiness and righteousness and judgment of God, they thought they were falling into hell at that very moment. Some of them got up and grabbed on to the pillars in the room thinking they were sliding into hell. One minister had to cry out that was there, but Mr. Edwards, isn't God also merciful? Now, I don't look to Jonathan Edwards for any pattern for preaching at all, but I want to give you an example of the Puritans. Before he preached that sermon, and some people have, people have wondered for 200 years where in the world did he get the power to read in a monotone and have men respond that way. He spent three days in prayer. He spent three days in prayer. I mean, it was not uncommon to read of Puritans that would arise at four in the morning to pray until eight to begin their studies. And women to pray extended prayers and very fervent prayers for their children so that as those children grew, they knew their mothers and fathers as men and women of prayer. But we live in a society that because we've watered God down and His holiness and the glory of His presence, I mean, now, you know, we teach children little nursery rhymes when they go to bed that are what we call prayers. Now, I don't, and I hope you don't, but our nation does. And we come to God sometimes so flippantly without the sincerity, without the dedication, without the seriousness that's characterized other generations. And sometimes we wonder why is there not more power in our lives, in our churches, and why is God letting our nation go downhill so fast? Well, it's easy. As you'll see, men are to be praying for their nation. But when the prayers are not effectual, they're not going to be heard. They are effectual prayers that avail much. And it doesn't matter if men pray for the nation if the prayers aren't effectual. Not a whole lot's going to get done. And our nation continues to go downhill. We can have a great influence in a number of areas in our lives and in the lives of others through prayer. We can preserve our children through prayer. You say, I thought that it was all up to me to train my children the way they should go. And when they're old, they'll go in that way. Do I need to answer that false delusion? If God is not aiding and blessing, and in fact doing most of the work with your children, you're not going to get the job done. Right. We can have an influence over our children's lives from this day forward until the day they die by praying for them. Did you remember that David invoked his mother, God's handmaid, as a reason for God blessing him? We can preserve our children through prayer. And if we preserve our children, it'll preserve us. Because a foolish son is a calamity of his mother and great bitterness to his father. We can influence our families. Many of us have brothers, sisters, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins that we want to see converted, saved from trouble in their lives, and we can influence them through prayer by praying for men and women that are in our families. We can preserve our nation. Many times people look at all the things going wrong in America and want to know, what can I do? The greatest thing you can do is to learn effectual prayer and engage in it. But it is not going to come easy. Is there anything easy in life? There is nothing easy in life. What I'm talking about this morning is a change in our patterns of behavior. And that is sincere, effectual, heart-rending, dedicated, fasting, 
self-denying prayer before God. If that's done, we can have a preserving influence in a nation. It's the greatest thing we can do in our nation is to pray for it. You know, we get frustrated. Last Sunday evening I preached from the book of Ecclesiastes and the frustration that comes from looking at the affairs of our nation and realizing how much better it could be if they only had a little wisdom. Well, how often have you prayed for God to give our leaders that wisdom? Do you have any love and desire to see this church grow and prosper, not only in numbers, but in our character, in our godliness? Do you have a desire for that? Then we should be praying for our church. You can affect great things for our church through prayer, but the prayer has to be effectual. How about evangelism? Look at the families of this congregation. Are they here because of Fifth Avenue type mass advertising? Or are they here because God has brought us in contact with an individual or a family one by one in which the Lord has given us an opportunity to share the gospel with them? Now, I'm not giving Bible verses right now because that's going to come later for all of these particular points, that God tells us to pray for them and he promises that prayer is a way that we affect change in these areas. The devil has committed himself to warfare against your soul. Ephesians chapter 6. You are only given one offensive piece of armor, or I should say an offensive weapon. And you are only told one thing to do actively. You are given the sword of the Spirit as your offensive weapon, and you are told to pray with all perseverance against the devil. How often do you do that? And then we wonder why ourselves, our families, our children, and our church is affected, infected, influenced by the devil. How do we stand against his wiles? With the Word of God, this is what we do actively, with the Word of God and prayer. How about our health? How many times did David pray for physical safety and health? It's dependent upon God. I will show you before we're done where there was a man who was afflicted greatly in his feet. He had a very serious disease. He had been a godly man, but he was infected in his feet. And the Bible says plainly at the end of his life, he sought unto the physicians, but not unto God. Yes, there's a place for medical science. We are not Christian scientists, and we are not Jehovah's Witnesses. But I'll tell you one thing. Those doctors are so ignorant and so impotent compared to Almighty God, you ought to have the right priority in the right place. Health comes from the Lord, not from the AMA. How about our wisdom? Sometimes you feel ignorant. Sometimes you feel overwhelmed by a situation in your life. What should I do? Well, what should you do? Pray for wisdom, and the Lord will give you a little bit. Is that what it says? It says he'll give you liberally, and he won't upbraid you for begging for more. James chapter 1 and verse 5. Hey, we all get overwhelmed. We all face situations, and we say, Lord, I'm but a child. I do not know how to go in and out before your congregation. Can you think of a man who once said those words? Solomon. What happened to him? Did the Lord give liberally? Yes. So liberally that he not only received the greatest wisdom, but he also received riches and honor and long life. How about your prosperity? You wonder why you're not prospering more than you are? How seriously have you prayed for prosperity? How seriously have you prayed for God's blessing in your life? Your safety. Do you sleep peacefully at night or are you worried about safety? Or do you arm yourselves to the teeth? And don't anybody smile at me. I know I'm armed to the teeth. But I'm not trusting those weapons for my safety. I'm trusting the Lord for my safety. That's the only way to sleep peacefully at night. Because every man knows that 
someone could come along craftily enough or armed heavily enough that you're not going to defend against him if God is not on your side. I have taught this congregation and I have exhorted you that as men primarily and as women secondarily, you try to be God's man or God's woman in these last days, haven't I? Have I taught that? That I want you, Greg Duran, to be God's man in this generation. Forget everyone else. Forget your pastor. You should be God's man. And I've prayed that and I've taught that for the women. Let me remind you of why I pray for that and why I teach that. Do you remember the five men that God spoke of in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel as men that he had so much respect for that he would preserve a whole nation on their behalf? Do you remember the five men? Let's go to Jeremiah 15.1 quickly to see these men. I want you to be reminded, oh, if I could just provoke you enough out of competition, out of love for the Lord, to want to be like these five men. Jeremiah 15.1, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Now Judah had got to a place where prayer was no longer going to do anything. Prayer was gone. God had already purposed to judge them. But previously to that, these two men had preserved the nation by themselves. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. Moses and Samuel were the first two. We have three more in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14. You have no desire, you have no idea how my heart is burdened for each of you men and women to want to be like these five. Because as a pastor of a congregation, if you're all trying to be like these five, what a church the Greenville church will be. Ezekiel 14 and 14. Those, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Now, those three men had previously saved nations and families and cities by their righteousness. Here's the point I want to make this morning as I'm introducing the subject of prayer. Do you know what those five men are known for? Effectual prayer. How do, you, how do you be a man? How can you be a man like Daniel? Be a man of prayer like Daniel. How can you have influence like the man Moses? Be a man of prayer like Moses was. How can I accomplish great things like Samuel? Be a man of prayer like Samuel was. Did Moses ever pray? Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106. You say, why are we turning to the Psalms to hear about Moses praying? David knew who had saved his nation. David knew what man had been instrumental in preserving his nation. And it's found in Psalm 106 and verse 23. In verse 21 and 22, we have Israel forgetting God and the wondrous works he did in the land of Ham, which is the land of Egypt. In verse 24, therefore he said, verse 23, therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he should destroy them. Notice, God was angry with an entire nation, but one man was able to intercede in prayer on behalf of that nation, and friends, not just once. If you've read about the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses was doing it over and over and over again because God wanted to wipe them all out and start over with Moses. And Moses would intercede on behalf of the nation and preserve them. One man able to preserve a nation. You say, well, one man couldn't preserve America. 
One man was able to preserve a nation so rebellious and stiff-necked that they forgot the great wonders performed in Egypt, and God was, his anger burned hot against that nation. And one man was able to preserve through prayer and his own righteousness. We'll not even turn to Samuel, because I've turned to it a, a couple evenings ago when we sing that song that has the words Ebenezer in it. Do you remember where Ebenezer comes from in the Bible? It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, where the Philistines gathered themselves together against Israel, and the Israelites were frightened, and they begged Samuel to pray for them. And Samuel took a little sucking lamb, a lamb that was still nursing from its mother, and slew it before the Lord and offered it as a burnt sacrifice and supplicated God. And God thundered upon the Philistines and destroyed them, and the Israelites scattered them and took great spoil. And they named that place Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Samuel preserved the nation from the Philistines through his intercessory prayer to God. Now, we're not told very much about Noah, nor about his prayers. But look at Genesis chapter 6, and we can certainly conclude and assume some things about Noah. Noah preserved his family. It does not say that Mrs. Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. It says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah, verse 9. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And if you think a man can be perfect without praying, you don't know what God means by the word perfect. And it goes on further to say, And Noah walked with God. How do you walk with God? Does that mean you're moving your legs down some pathway someplace where God hides in the woods? Or does it mean that you are in close communion with God, Him speaking to you and you speaking to Him, like Enoch and like Adam had the opportunity in the Garden of Eden before the fall? Noah was a man of prayer. We know it because he was just, he was perfect, and he walked with God. That is a position of communication with God. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord and was preserved, though the rest of the human race was destroyed. Do you know what I'm talking about this morning? I'm talking about each one of you holding a position before God of grace that you have obtained through prayer and diligently seeking him that there may not be another man on the face of this earth with your ability before God. You say, men don't have ability with God. What did God say to Jacob after Jacob wrestled with him all night long and would not let him go? What did he say? Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. One of my, well, I've said that so many times. I love Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. Beginning at verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. This is verse 25. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is the, the man, that is an angel, that is the Lord. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Now that's prayer. That's asking God for a blessing. I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Why did he change his name? Listen to these words. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Don't you ever think that prayer is some worthless exercise. You can prevail with God. You can have power against and with the Most High. You say, against. Yes, the Lord tried to leave. <laughs> and Jacob wouldn't let him go. You say, well, the Lord could have left if he really wanted to. And the Lord can leave you also. But he's looking for that effort 
that will keep him there. That diligently seeking of him that will keep him there. He could have left and Jacob could have said, okay, go ahead. I quit. I give up. I'm not going to continue in perseverance in prayer. And we'll come back to Genesis 32 when we deal with hanging in there, persistence, because this is the greatest example. You can have power with God. When I mention saving your children, your family, and I don't mean saving them from hell, and you know better than that, saving yourself at night, giving yourself wisdom, preserving our nation, standing against the wiles of the devil and his influence in our lives, prayer has power. And I wish to God that each of you men, especially, and you women, just about as especially, would become champions of prayer where you would be princes and princesses that would have power with God. Does that grip you at all? Or am I up here foaming away for some foolish and vain exercise? What a church. The apostles and the early disciples turned the world upside down. And I'll tell you, they didn't turn it upside down with flights of Eastern Airlines all over the place. They turn it upside down with prayer. Boy, when they had prayer meetings and oh, Acts chapter four, when they had a prayer meeting there in the church, it says the place shook, and they went out boldly, and many were converted because of prayer. And if all of you can be gripped with the importance of prayer this morning, what things can we accomplish? You don't know, and I don't know. Do you know where I'm going to go? For that statement, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, you need not turn there. You all know it. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. I don't know what God can do in a congregation that gets serious about prayer. And I don't know what God can do in your life if you get serious about prayer. I just know He can do great things, and they're greater than I can imagine. And I can imagine some pretty great things. Isn't that what it says? Do you think David ever prayed to be the king of Israel with God coming down and telling him, I'm going to establish your throne forever, and my only begotten son will be your son, and the throne he sits on will be called your throne? Now, would you have imagined that if you were out keeping sheep? God can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. What about Daniel? Do we even need to go to the book of Daniel to find out that Daniel was a man of prayer? When men wanted to destroy Daniel, what did they go after in his life? His prayers. How often did he pray a day? Three times, morning, noon, and afternoon, or evening. Daniel chapter 6. The whole chapter is about Daniel ending up in a lion's den because he was a man of prayer. Daniel chapter 9. Wasn't Daniel given more understanding of future events than any man short of the Apostle John? Why did he get all that information? Because in Daniel chapter 9, he confessed the sins of the entire nation of Israel, and his prayer was heard, and God sent the commandment of Cyrus to restore that nation. By the prayers of Daniel, Daniel confessed the sins of a nation. Job, the last of our five men. Was Job a man of prayer? What did Job do every time his sons and daughters had a party? He prayed and confessed their sins in just with the possibility that they might have cursed God in their hearts. You familiar with that in Job chapter 1? In Job chapter 42, when God got done, when God finished, God got done. This preacher is rude in speech, isn't he? When God finished dealing with Job's three friends, what did he say those three friends needed to do if they wanted to get back in fellowship with him? Go ask Job to pray for you. Do you understand the power that those five men had in prayer? Moses saved a nation. Noah preserved himself and his family when the rest of the human race was obliterated. Samuel preserved a nation. Daniel restored a nation. Get a hold of that one. That's probably more like what we need in America. Restoration, not preservation. <laughs> and then Job preserved his children 
and preserved his friends by his prayer. I wish you could be gripped with that fact. Look at the book of Revelation. Do you know what prayers are? Do you know if you could be in heaven right now what you would see? If you could be in heaven right now, Revelation, the fifth chapter, and stand at the throne of God himself, what would you see? You would see incense coming up before the throne and God sitting there on his throne. And this is how he describes himself to us, although he is an eternal spirit. Smelling the sweet savour of that incense and delighting in it. And you would say to the angels, what is that incense that the Most High is enjoying? And what would they say? They would answer you with the same instruction that we have in Revelation 5 and verse 8. When Jesus Christ came in and took the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. What I'm talking about this morning is for you developing prayer habits and methods of praying and attitudes of prayer that will get your prayer to the nostrils of the Most High as this form of incense, that it will make it there, and that it will be more than just noise that never makes it above the ceiling of the room you're in. Sometimes don't you get down on your knees and you wonder if your prayer is making it more than eight feet off the floor? I want your prayer to travel the interstellar spaces between here and the throne of God and come up before incenses for him that he'll smell it and take delight in this congregation. And my God, I hope that you'll pray for me also because your pastor needs it and God says to pray for him and I'll be blessed by it. You know what kind of prayers, what kind of effect those kind of prayers can have? on this congregation? Look at Second Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Oh, I want your prayers making it to the throne room of God into His presence. In Second Chronicles chapter 30, Hezekiah held the greatest Passover that Israel had seen since Solomon and David cut loose with all their celebrations in their day. It, religion had died in Israel. Hezekiah restored it. And they had a great Passover. And listen to, look at verse 27, the last verse of the chapter. Oh, this verse sends chills down my back. Second Chronicles 30 and verse 27, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. And their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Their prayer came up to the holy dwelling place of the infinite God. Now we believe and we teach that God can do things in this world. And if you can get a prayer into his holy dwelling place, you have his power at your disposal according to his will. But you don't get there with a 30-second flippant instead of fervent, weak instead of effectual prayer coming from the lips of an unrighteous instead of a righteous man. Now, those five men I just set before you aren't the lowest targets to aim for that we could select from the Word of God. They are righteous men. But prayers can reach the holy dwelling place of the Most High, and you can perform changes in this world. Prayer changes things. You say, now you're denying God's decrees. No, if you say prayer doesn't change things, you're denying God's foreknowledge. And I want to make, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We're going to cover all this thoroughly. I want to make something very clear. God's determinant counsel 
operates with his foreknowledge. This idea that God has absolutely determined all things that come to pass apart from foreknowledge is of the devil. That reduces all of us to nothing, and prayer would not change things. God's determinant counsel, and I use Acts chapter 2 as my proof, operates in conjunction with his foreknowledge, not in the matter. Yes, it does operate in the matter of election. God's foreknowledge was active in election. His foreknowledge said, if I don't elect, no one will be saved. And when it comes to your prayers being heard, God's foreknowledge sees the prayers when his determinant counsel determines what's going to be done as a result of those prayers. We're just dealing with a bigger mind than you've got. God could look down from before he created Adam and determine that Newell Eastland was going to become a man of prayer more so than he had been after September 13, 1987, and God was going to shower blessings upon him because of that fact. Because God sees the end from the beginning, and his de decrees operate in conjunction with that. But let me make one thing clear. Effectual prayers are what avail much. And there are a whole lot of prayers. And let me dare say, most all prayers are not effectual, which means they don't avail much. Now I read in 1 Kings chapter 18 that the prophets of Baal prayed all day long. Every religion in this world has some form, system, or program of praying. The prophets of Baal prayed. Were they fervent? <laughs> when was the last time you took a knife out and cut yourself and let the blood run when you were praying? They were fervent. But they weren't effectual. They didn't avail much. An effectual prayer is a prayer that gets its job done. When something is effectual, it is something that accomplishes its intended effect or end. Effectual means effective. Jesus said, ask, and it shall be given you. But is that all he says about prayer? I read in James chapter 4 and verse 2, and you need this verse, James chapter 4 and verse 2, and this is why we preach on prayer. James 4 and verse 2, Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Well, they just needed Matthew 7, 7, didn't they? Ask, and it shall be given you. But look at verse 3. Ye ask, and receive not, because ye ask amiss. Matthew 7, 7 may say, ask, and it shall be given you. But James 4, 3 tells us you can ask amiss and you'll receive nothing. James chapter 1, verse 7, describing the prayer of a man who doesn't have faith but who doubts while he's praying, says, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. You can ask amiss. What I'm talking about this morning and this evening and to next Sunday morning and next Sunday evening will be asking according to God's pattern and instruction for prayer so that you'll receive. Prayer by itself without training and teaching isn't going to be effectual. You'll end up asking amiss and you won't receive. If you've been wondering why your prayers seem to be impotent compared to the prayers of men in the Word of God, take James 4.3 as a diagnosis. You've probably been praying amiss. You say, well, God may just be testing me to see how long I'll continue praying. That's right. And if you give up, you're praying amiss. That's what my whole point is. Because that's one of the aspects of proper prayer. You don't give up. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, you would not believe some of the sermons I've heard preached from that. We ought to go through life with our minds praying 24 hours a day. 
Have you ever heard a sermon preached that way from that text? That's not teaching that. Listen, there are things you're doing that if you're praying, you're going to kill yourself. If an airplane pilot, while piloting a plane, uh, uh, one of our modern jet fighters through strict maneuvers is praying, he's going to kill himself. You can't pray all the time. What about when you sleep? Pray without ceasing means you don't give up. And I'll prove that point when we get to it. But that can be praying amiss by giving up too quickly. The Lord is watching your efforts. I mean, what if Jacob would have just relaxed a little bit and gone into what some call just a holding pattern while he was wrestling with the angel? Would he have got the blessing? No. He held on and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He received the blessing. Look at Luke 11 in verse 1. Luke chapter 11. Why do we preach on prayer? Why do we preach on prayer? Luke 11 and verse 1. Get it now. Here's the basis for teaching on prayer. And it came to pass that as he, that is Jesus Christ, was praying in a certain place when he ceased. Can you imagine Jesus Christ praying and being there at that prayer meeting? I mean, I wouldn't be... We'll not talk about how the disciples were looking at each other during the prayer amazed at the earnestness of a prayer of Christ. Remember when Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed so earnestly, His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, how would you like to be in a prayer meeting like that? Well, after the disciples heard Christ pray, when He ceased, one of His disciples said unto Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Prayer is not something that comes naturally. We get that idea, or at least based on our practice, we get that idea that prayer is just something that everybody who knows anything about the Bible ought to be able to do just fine. These disciples had been with Christ for some time, yet when they heard him pray, they realized, uh-oh, my prayer life has some serious deficiencies. Lord, teach us to pray. Even as John taught his disciples to pray, Lord, there is a place for you to teach us to pray. John the Baptist, in fact, taught men how to pray because it must be something that is taught. It doesn't come naturally. When we say the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, let's define a few words in that statement. Effectual means effective. Effectual is just something that gets its entire end or objective accomplished. Effectual prayer is prayer that is answered. Effectual prayer is prayer that makes it to the holy dwelling place of the Most High. The effectual fervent prayer we read. What does fervent mean? Fervent means of persons or their actions ardent, intensely earnest, enthusiastic, zealous, Jehu was a fervent man. The Apostle Paul was a fervent man because they had great zeal. That's why Jehu could say to a friend, come up and I'll show you my zeal for the Lord. That's being fervent. Great earnestness like Christ had when he prayed in the garden and he needed angels to come and strengthen him. And he received those angels there in the garden when his sweat was as blood. Righteous men. Righteous men are just, upright, virtuous men who behave justly and rightly. It's their prayer that is heard when they pray fervently, that is with zeal, and when they, they achieve the end of their prayers. What we're dealing with is effectual prayer. How should we pray? What attitude should I have? What position should I pray in? What should the content of my prayer be? And a number of other points we're going to cover as we look at effectual prayer. What can make my prayer effective so that it gets to God's throne and I can accomplish great things like Moses, Samuel, Noah, Daniel, and Job accomplished in their prayers. Are you a praying person? Don't anyone raise their hands. 
Charity believes all things and hopes all things. Are you a praying person? If God were to have sent a letter to me ranking you in prayer with Moses and Samuel, Daniel, Noah, and Job, or ranking you in prayer with the rest of the congregation, where would you stand? Are you a praying person? Do you pray effectually? Would God say, their prayers make it to my holy dwelling place, and it's like incense before me? Do you want to learn effectual prayer? Now, I know that to the flesh, effectual prayer is one of the most boring topics that I could ever come up with to teach you. And I want to put you on notice right now. If you have a idea of hearing about prayer for a few sermons, it says something very definite about your spiritual state because prayer is the way you commune with God. It means you don't want to have a close relationship with God. It means you don't think you need God. Prayer is the cry of a soul and a heart to its maker, to its friend, to its source of all strength for aid and enablement while living here. It is the communication of two that are supposed to have a, desi have a desire to be with each other. That's walking with God. Are you a praying person? I hope you'll be more of a praying person henceforward. Do you pray effectually? I hope to God the prayers of this congregation become effectual for our children, for our families, our evangelism, the future preservation of our church, our nation, your pastor, your wisdom. Just think what we could accomplish if God was actively blessing us in those areas. And if you're not excited, you've got problems. Because when God says He can do above what you can think, I am overwhelmed with the possibilities that could result from this series being put into practice. Now, I won't say it's the most important series I've ever preached, but I can't think of one more important for the future health of our church and for my future health, for your future health. God, save me through your prayers. You're to pray for me. I'm looking forward to it from a selfish basis. Mostly, though, I want to see God honored by people getting on their knees and wrestling with Him like Jacob and prevailing against the Most High. That just turns me on to think of some princes and princesses in my congregation. I want to give you some examples this morning, and I'm sure that's all the further we're going to get before we finish this morning, but I want to give you some examples of prayer. I'm not in any hurry to get through this. I'm going to make you look at most, <clears throat> at many of the prayers in the Word of God until you are so saturated with how men of the Bible pray that effectual prayer may be natural. It'll be, it'll be the nature of your spiritual mind to want to pray the way men prayed in the Word of God. But the examples I want to give you now are not examples so much as how to pray, but I'm still trying to get your spirits up for this series. And I want to give you examples of prayer that accomplished some big things. Because those prayers are given to us for that reason, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. What kind of hope? That when we pray, we can get some things done like these men and women. And I'll give you both. Did. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Number 16 was the passage that our family used last night for our devotions. It's a fantastic chapter describing Moses and his position before the nation of Israel and before God. 
Numbers chapter 16. I want to remind you something about Moses before we read his prayer. Moses was the meekest man that stood on the face of the earth. Moses did not want to be God's leader. Moses wanted to be a shepherd in Midian with a wife and kids. Moses didn't want to lead Israel. Moses didn't like the publicity. Moses didn't like being the example. Moses didn't like having to judge Israel. Moses didn't like having to presume on the people for them to listen to him. He didn't want that. He was meek. He just wanted to serve God himself. And Numbers chapter 16 is the story of men who came before Moses and said, Who do you think you are exalting yourself over the congregation? And when I read that, my heart and my lungs and my stomach get constricted even thinking about the feelings that went through Moses. He didn't want that office. He felt bad enough every morning when he stood before that congregation without men accusing him of trying to be holier than the rest of the congregation. Listen to their blasphemous words. Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. 254 men gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. Now I'm trying to get you into most inside Moses. That man was scared. That man was sick. And he fell flat on his face for a meek man to be accused of having taken to himself the office of leading God's people is a crushing blow. But I worship a great God who defends his ministers. And I love Moses when it comes to this particular event because the last thing in the world I would have chosen is to be here this morning. And anybody who knows me knows that so well it need not even be said. Verse 28 is Moses' prayer. Here's meek Moses. Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth, and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods, they, and all that appertained to them, went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Let the earth swallow us up also. Now you can imagine there was quite a roar from Korah and his men when the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them all alive and all that pertained unto them. My point from number 16 is not the call to the ministry. My point is, meek Moses, short prayer, earth open. Don't forget it. Meek Moses made a short prayer to his God. And Moses stood with an honest heart before God. He was a righteous man. He didn't want that office. Don't you remember how upset God got with him on the backside of the desert trying to make him go to Egypt? He prayed, and the Lord did a new thing in the earth. A new thing in the earth. Don't forget it. And if you tell me God doesn't do new things in the earth, 
I'll call you a liar. Based on Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 again, that I'll invoke for the third time, he's able to do exceeding abundantly above what you can ask or think. And if all he does are things that are already done, then we've thought them. He can do new things in the earth. Oh, it may not be opening the earth and swallowing up the Pope and his entourage in Phoenix, Arizona. But he can do some very amazing things. What if the Pope was converted? Which would be a greater new thing? The earth swallowing him up or the Pope being converted? You say, even you don't have faith for that. We'll cover that when we get to faith in prayer. That's a, I want you to remember the prayer of Moses. Look at Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua in chapter 10 is fighting against five kings of the Amorites. Verse 5 tells us, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And he's fighting against these five kings. And the battle's been going sore all day, and they're running out of time. And Joshua utters this short prayer, beginning in verse 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Joshua in a battle, running out of time, darkness. They could get away. They won't do what God commanded them to do. Sun, stand still. Moon, stay in your place. And for a day, that's what they did. You say, well, those are just ridiculous Bible stories that we tell our children. Those, quote, ridiculous Bible stories, unquote, are given to increase your hope that your prayers can accomplish equivalent things. And to me, the conversion of a soul by God regenerating them and opening their heart to see and understand the truth is at least as equal to stopping the inanimate sun and moon in their place. For God to take a soul dead in trespasses and sins and regenerate them and convert them is a creation. Stopping the sun's just putting your hand out and stopping a piece of inanimate material. God can do great things. May not be the same, but equivalent. Oh, Joshua, what a prayer he had. Look at Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Samson has finally been captured through his foolishness. This is important. Do you want the Scriptures to give you hope? Have we ever been foolish like Samson? Why was Samson captured? Because a strange woman that Proverbs warns us against clearly, seduced him into giving away his source of strength and his long hair from his vow of being a perpetual Nazarite. He's been grinding grain for the Philistines for a while. They've been using him like an ox. He's just been turning a grinding wheel for a while. His eyes have been burned up, put out. He has no eyes. He has kept in shape grinding grain. And one problem, his hair grew out. And they call for Samson to come into the house of their gods so that they could make fun of him, make sport of him, tease him, mock him as the great champion of the Israelites that they had captured. And he asked for the little boy who led him out to lead him to the two pillars upon which lead him to the pillars whereupon the house standeth. This is verse 26 of Judges 16, that I may lean upon them. Now verse 27, Now the house was full of men and women, 
And all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, and here's his prayer, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Short prayer. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. His greatest victory was that in his death, as he slew more there than ever with the jawbone of an ass or with his bare hands, when he worked on the Philistines during the years that he ruled and judged Israel. But notice the prayer. Even though he was in his predicament, even though as God's judge he was being mocked and made fun of by the Philistines, God remembered him when he prayed. These prayers are to give you hope. Have we ever behaved foolishly like Samson? Indeed. Indeed. But God remembers our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He takes pity on us, and He'll show mercy even when we've got ourselves into predicaments that we deserve. God can be merciful. One more prayer this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Here's a woman. We recently studied this chapter in a morning service. 1 Samuel chapter 1, this is Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, the man who had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had sons and daughters. Hannah had none. The Lord had shut up her womb, verse 5, and her adversary provoked her sore, verse 6, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. Things were happening in her life that caused her to fret and be distressed, and adversaries were making fun of her. Peninnah, the other wife. Verse 7, And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, that is, Peninnah, provoking Hannah. Therefore she wept and did not eat. I mean, this is a woman torn up over the fact that she has no children, and she's being made fun of by a woman who has children. And Hannah goes to Shiloh, where the presence of the Lord was. In verse 10, And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. This wasn't a flippant prayer. This was a fervent prayer. She wept sore. It was tearing her up. It was wringing her out. As she poured out, her soul before the Lord. Verse 11, And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. You can pray silently to yourself from your heart. We'll get to that under another point. The point I want you to get here is Hannah, in bitterness of soul, prays to the Lord for a man-child. Eli hears her prayer and tells her that her prayer will be heard. And verse 20 we read, Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And there she keeps her vow by taking Samuel and giving him at about the age of five years to the service of the tabernacle in Shiloh to Eli. 
And then how does the Lord bless her further? Verse 21 of chapter 2, And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. She prayed for one, exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. She prayed for one man child. She kept her vow and gave him to the Lord. She ended up with three more sons and two more daughters. And her prayer of the first ten verses of 1 Samuel 2 are her rejoicing in the Lord for His goodness toward her. Prayer accomplishes things. Prayer changes things. God shut up her womb. God opened her womb. That was a change. That was a change in God's behavior toward Hannah. And what affected that change? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous woman made that change. Moses prayed and the Lord opened up the earth. Joshua prayed. The sun stood still. Samson prayed and God gave him his great strength one final time. Hannah prayed and she was blessed with four sons and two daughters. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Are we going to be men and women of prayer like these? Or will we continue with our weak, impotent lives of unused and abused prayer habits? Or are we going to seriously look at what the Lord's Word teaches about prayer and make some changes? Lord, teach us to pray is my prayer, and I hope that all of you have that same prayer as we continue this series this evening. May God bless the preaching of His Word.